The Da Da Dee Da Da Code by Robert Rankin. Chapter 25. Oh my goodness, said Johnny Hooker. Oh my goodness me. Mr. Giggles peered over his shoulder. Johnny could smell his breath. Johnny slammed the laptop shut. Best put this somewhere safe, said Johnny. The pond, said Mr. Giggles. Johnny shook his head. So what did you see? What did you see? Mr. Giggles bobbed up and down. Johnny Hooker ignored him. Come on, Johnny, crooned the monkey boy. You have no secrets from me. No secrets? Johnny was having a moment. One of those moments. Those moments that you sometimes, although rarely have, when all sorts of things seem to fall into place. Everything appears to make sense. All becomes clear. And things of that nature, generally. Johnny was having one of those moments. And he wasn't on drugs or anything. The image he'd seen on the screen, the breath upon his neck, the two had triggered one of those moments. Johnny Hooker arose. On second thoughts, said Johnny, I think it would be best if I were to keep this laptop safe. He opened his ranger's jacket and viewed the big poacher's pocket. Park ranger's jackets always have big poacher's pockets. It's so they can carry the rabbits and such like that they catch in their snares. It's a tradition, or an old charter, or something. So what did you see? asked Mr. Giggles. Come on, I won't tell anyone. That's a new approach, said Johnny. I will tell you one thing that's on there. Top of the alphabetical list. Apocalypse Blues by Robert Johnson. Someone might have nicked the original recording from James Crawford's collection, but obviously not before he was able to put it on his laptop. Johnny, you're not thinking to play it? Listen to find out whether it really does have the devil's laughter at the end? Don't do it, Johnny. I'm begging you not to. Begging me? said Johnny. You'll die if you hear it. And he had just had that moment. All right, said Johnny. I'll promise. And do you really believe that? I do. I really do. I wonder, said Johnny. You will die, said Mr. Giggles. You will die. You will. But why should I believe you? Johnny asked. Because I'm telling the truth, and I don't want you to die. Because if I die, you die. And that, yes, we'll see, said Johnny. No, we will not see. Throw the laptop in the pond. Do it for your own good. You do sound very definite about this. I do, said Mr. Giggles. Listen, if I tell you something, a secret something, will you promise me that you won't play the record? Johnny thought about this proposition. And it was such a lovely day, and the birds were singing, and he was having such a good time, such an exciting time, and feeling so alive for the very first time in his life and everything. As long as what you tell me is worth it. I think you'll find it pertinent, said Mr. Giggles, seating himself next to Johnny. Go on, then. And Mr. Giggles did so. The deadens, said Mr. Giggles. Dr. Archie, James Crawford, the mystery man with your wallet in his pocket. I know how they died. They had their heads chopped off, said Johnny. Not chopped, said Mr. Giggles. More like atomized. Ah, said Johnny. The suspect will be a police constable, then. The suspect is there in that laptop, said Mr. Giggles. Those men died because they heard the devil's laughter. Too much for the human brain. Kaboom. And head all gone. You're having a laugh, said Johnny Hooker. I wish I was. It's how they found Hendrix and Morrison and all the rest. They covered it up in the 60s, of course. And Kurt Cobain shot his head off. A likely story, eh? The 27 Club, said Johnny. They heard the devil on Johnson's last recording and kaboom, 
said Mr. Giggles, atomized. Not pretty. So you see, I don't want this to happen to you. You saw Crawford's body, and don't you think you might have mentioned this to me earlier? I told you, you'd die if you heard the devil's laughter. But not that you knew how the murder victims had died. What did it matter? We don't know who played them the music. Crawford may have put the recording on his laptop, but he had more sense than to play it. He knew what it could do. Why didn't he just destroy the original recording? Perhaps Crawford did. Perhaps it wasn't stolen. But this is, as I've said, the unholy grail of music, Johnson's final recording. Perhaps he cleaned it up, said Johnny, digitally, removed the devil's laughter. I wouldn't advise you to check. His head had been atomized. Hmm, went Johnny. I don't like that. Hmm. And don't go getting any ideas about testing it on a guinea pig in a soundproof room. It won't work. Well, said Johnny, this is all most interesting, and no doubt pertinent, but I have a pressing engagement. You do? said Mr. Giggles. I do, said Johnny. Big as my breakfast was, I now fancy lunch, and a pint of King Billy. I'm off to the pub. The pub was not on Inspector Westlake's schedule. He was all gung-ho and well-fired up and filled with motivation. And he was now at the big house in Gunnersbury Park and having a word at the reception desk. Inspector Westlake, said Inspector Westlake, on special secondment from the Bramfield Constabulary, here to supervise the security arrangements for Sunday's conference. And what conference would that be? Joan asked as she regarded the inspector in the manner known as coquettish. Top secret, said Inspector Westlake, giving his nose that certain tap. Which would be why I haven't been informed of it. Would you care for a light-up pencil with a dinosaur on the top? We've just had a delivery of them, and a great many other such items. No, ma'am, I certainly would not. Inspector Westlake looked this way and that. Constable Justice looked the other. Joan grinned at Constable Justice. Saucy, she said as she... A word with your superior, please, said Inspector Westlake. Spoke to her earlier on the blower. Countess Vanda by name. Pleasant lady, rather posh. I'll give her a little tinkle, said Joan. And she did so. She spoke words, received others, and put down the phone. She said she'll be down in just a moment. Splendid, said Inspector Westlake. Little balls, said Joan. Madam? Inspector Westlake raised his eyebrows. We have little plastic balls, said Joan, for sale, here in the museum shop. They're new in, too. Transparent, for they have dinosaurs inside them. Fascinating, said Inspector Westlake, whose foot was beginning to tap. You have restless legs, said Joan, which must make you posh, I suppose. Must it? The inspector inquired. Your other chap had the restless legs, and he's posh. My other chap? Inspector Westlake made a baffled face. Police security chap. Very well dressed. Black suit, white shirt, really expensive sun specs. Police security chap? What are you talking about, madam? He just popped down the corridor to the toilet. Just popped? Who is this fellow? Did he identify himself to you? He said I was to call him Joshua. He left his warrant card with me and said I wasn't to look at it because it was top secret. Kindly show me this card. But it's top secret. Madam, I am an officer of the law. Kindly show me this card or I will have no option other than to have you shot. Joan fished the card from her cleavage. She handed it to the inspector. Inspector Westlake drew out a pistol. A gun, shrieked Joan. No, please, a gun indeed, said Constable Justice. An all-chrome Desert Eagle 44 long-slide semi-automatic with double lever action. You certainly know your handguns, Constable, said Inspector Westlake. And he drew out another such weapon and flung it to his fellow officer. Sir, said that fellow. Terrorist threat, said Inspector Westlake. 
Get on the blower to the station. Constable, we have a situation here. Joan began to flap her pretty hands about. No cause for alarm, madam, said Inspector Westlake. We are professionals. We are trained to deal with this kind of situation. But he's not a terrorist. He has a posh voice, and terrorists are common folk, foreign, swarthy, with beards. Everyone knows that. Inspector Westlake proffered the card. This is my warrant card, he said, or rather a copy of my warrant card. Down that corridor there, you say he went? Joan pointed, and then she ducked, as did Inspector Westlake. But he not only ducked, he returned fire also. Chapter 26 Constable Justice assumed the position, which is not to say that of the captured villain. This was the down-on-one-knee with the gun at arm's length held tightly between two hands position. Constable Justice had assumed this particular position many times in the past, but always in the comfort and privacy of his cozy bedroom. He had not been allowed on the shooting range. He had not been issued with one of the if-he-looks-a-bit-foreign-looking-and-suspicious-and-likely-to-be-tooled-up-shoot-to-kill licenses, which all armed British policemen carry in the interests of national security, but pretend that they don't. Regarding the matter of being allowed on the shooting range, he had signed on for the firearms course, and he had been accepted. But there had been a bit of bother when he'd been handed the gun. There had been a bit of, perhaps, lightheadedness on his part. The excitement of holding a real firearm had, perhaps, got the better of him. There had been gunshots. There had been minor injuries. Happily, there had been no loss of life. Die, mother f shouted Constable Justice, and he let off with the full clip. The chap in the dark suit did a sort of judo roll from one side of the corridor to the other. The corridor was flanked by a row of marble columns. Fluted they were with marble bases, and richly ornamented in their upper regions. They had been designed by Inigo Jones for the occasion of Sir Henry Crawford's wedding. The bullets from Constable Justice's pistol strafed across these columns. Carrara marble flew in blurry chips. Stucco cascaded down. The chap in the black suit came up firing. Souvenir Taj Mahals decorated with dinosaur motifs exploded and went to ruin. Inspector Westlake shouted, Raise your hands and drop your weapon, then took to ducking once more. Bullets ricocheted and priceless artworks took the onslaught. Down behind the reception desk, Inspector Westlake radioed for backup. Terrorist attack. The big house. Gunnersbury Park. It was a simple message. A mere seven words. It got the job done back at the local constabulary. Oh, 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 went Constable Mulberry Grape a young and eager fellow who had a shared love for water sports and Westlife. He pressed the blood-red alarm button and ordered the breaking out of the high-velocity, broad-area, havoc-wreaking terror weapons. Sir, said Constable Justice, crawling over to Inspector Westlake, I think we have the pinned down. Do you want me to creep around to the rear of the big house, smash my way in through a window, creep up behind the and shoot him in the I don't think I quite understand you there, Constable, said the inspector, further ducking as Gunnersbury Park souvenir mugs shaped like stegosauruses popped and burst above his head and rattled all about. Esperanto, is it? I creep around to the rear of the house, sir, and no, Constable, the words with the beeps in them. Censored swear words, sir. Police constables are forbidden to swear. And who forbade you to swear, Constable? 
the chief of all policemen, sir, in a memo. Sir Robert Newman. Ah, said Inspector Westlake. That. Oh, look, sir, said Constable Justice, plucking something up from the chaos. A souvenir dinosaur in the shape of a dinosaur. Dinosaurs ruled the earth for ages and ages, said O'Fagan the landlord to Johnny the customer. They'd be ruling the world today if it weren't for the fact that they all died out. A pint of King Billy, please, said Johnny. Cut yourself shaving? asked O'Fagan. The old ones are always the best, said Johnny. Hence my talk of dinosaurs. Johnny watched O'Fagan pull the pint. O'Fagan was wearing a lot of gold jewelry. Several sovereign rings adorned his horny hands. Many chains of gold hung round his ragged neck. A gold earring pierced each ear. An ampelang of gold worried his willy, although Johnny couldn't see the ampelang. Happily. So, said Johnny, dinosaurs today, is it? And I thought that perhaps you would be asking me whether I loved it when a plan came together. Why would that be? asked O'Fagan, proffering the pint. Because you are clearly sporting all of this bling as a tribute to Mr. T out of the A-team. I prefer the word homage, said O'Fagan. But then I've always been a lover of cheese. Johnny paid for his pint with the fifty-pound note. O'Fagan held it up towards a shaft of sunlight. So you sold your story to the Sunday tabloids, too? he said. Not yet, said Johnny. But when everything's done and dusted, I certainly hope to. Hope springs eternal, said O'Fagan, ringing up no sale on the cash register, fishing out many pound coins and shrapnel, and dutifully shortchanging his customer. Sadly, however, the dinosaurs did not possess the gift of eternal life. Well done, you, said Johnny. Nicely done. Thank you, sir. I do pride myself that once I get a good toot going, I'm a hard man to shift from the subject. So, said Johnny, I see by that poster that you have a band playing here this evening. Dry rot. Are they any good? They're rubbish, said O'Fagan. I'd far rather have Dinosaur Jr. Or even a T-Rex tribute band? Not forgetting Pterodactyl and the dinosaurs, said O'Fagan. Who could? said Johnny. Or even Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Don't quite see the dinosaur connection there, said Johnny. On the legendary album, Lick My Decals Off, Baby, there's a track called Smithsonian Institute Blues. It's about dinosaurs. Bravo, said Johnny. And that song contains almost as many devil's intervals as Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. It's a wonderful world that we live in, said Johnny. And a better one without dinosaurs, said O'Fagan. We can all thank our lucky stars that they were too big for Noah to get them on his ark, and so all drown in the Great Flood. And he went off to serve a ringmaster and a couple of dwarves who had recently entered the bar. Brontosaurus, Johnny heard him say, don't get me started on that. I'm thinking, said Mr. Giggles, that perhaps we'd better have another look at that laptop. Johnny ignored Mr. Giggles. Well, think about it, magnet boy. Your new super-magnetic powers might well be scrambling the laptop's innards. Johnny smiled and said nothing at all. This isn't a... Dry-cleaning service, Johnny heard O'Fagan shout at the ringmaster. Out of this pub this instant, and take your two strange children with you. The ringmaster left the pub in a sulk, and a top hat, and red ringmaster's coat. Said O'Fagan. Pardon? said Johnny. Sorry, said O'Fagan. I do have a tendency to lasp into Esperanto when someone gets my goat. I didn't know you owned a goat, nor did I. What did he say to you? Johnny asked. The goat? asked O'Fagan. A talking goat? Where? Where? 
The ringmaster, said Johnny. Chap in the top hat and red ringmaster's coat. Oh, said O'Fagan. Ringmaster, was he? I thought he was a Royal Welsh Fusilier. He wanted directions to Gunnersbury Park. This is a pub, I told him. Not a dried Kleenex server, whatever that is. Slightly puzzled by that one, said Johnny. Give me a break, said O'Fagan. I can't pronounce cartographer. Why did he want to go to Gunnersbury Park? Probably to play on the pitch and putt like everyone else. Odd, said Johnny. You think that's odd, said O'Fagan. Then take a look at this. But Johnny had left the bar counter. He'd made it over to the front windows, lifted a corner of the nylon net curtain, and was peering out through an unwashed pane. The ringmaster and the two dwarves were in the car park beside a white transit van. It did not have a circus look to it, and there was no sign of any other performers, nor their distinctive wagons, nor the fairground paraphernalia, and the freak show booths that make a good circus a great one, and so on and so forth and such like. The ringmaster was being offered directions by a police constable. Johnny looked on as the police constable, obviously in response to a call on his police radio, spoke into it, listened, and then began to jump up and down, and then hustled the ringmaster and the dwarves into the transit van, which then left the car park at speed. Double-odd, said Johnny. If you think that's double-odd, said O'Fagan, then check this out. If I press it, here it goes, and he passed out. And Johnny left the bar. Got them on the blower, sir, said Constable Justice. They've left the station proper mob-handed. They'll be here as soon as they can. I thought you were creeping around to the back of the building in what might be mistaken for Esperanto, said Inspector Westlake. Seemed like a good idea at the time, sir, said the constable, ducking further as further gunshots caused him to further duck. But then I considered that I'm not wearing that Teflon body armor that the special ops chaps wear, so I might take around to the chest. And frankly, sir, as much as I love the job, I don't love it that much. I suppose that's fair enough, said Inspector Westlake. But tell me, constable... What exactly is that that you further ducked yourself into? Only me, said Joan. And down Pope's Lane they came in force, those officers of the law. Johnny, who had stepped from the bar to watch the departure of the white transit van, stepped back swiftly into the bar as the police cars all swept by. Do-da, 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 went the police car sirens. Da-da, dee-da-da, went Johnny. O'Fagan raised his head from behind the bar counter. I'm not doing that again. He said, I know that every boy should have a hobby, but you have to draw the line somewhere. Things went suddenly silent in the entrance hall of the big house, but for a gentle sighing that came from Joan. All was peace and quiet. Do you think he's run out of ammo, sir? whispered Constable Justice. Why don't you stick your head up above the reception desk and check? Not keen, sir. I could hold a gun up to this lady's head and tell the terrorist that if he doesn't give himself up, I'll shoot her. What? said Inspector Westlake. If you think it might work, said Joan. Just stay down, whispered the inspector, and doing the keep down gesture. He climbed slowly to his feet. Last chance, he called. Throw down your weapon and come out with your hands held high. And then the inspector went, wah, as he fell back onto Constable Justice. Constable Justice saw why. The figure in black reared over them. He was up on the reception desk, and then, and here the wah, became involved. He was up above them. He was across the ceiling, scuttling like a great black spider, and then he went down and out of the door, and things went quiet again. Chapter 27 Constable Paul assumed the position. It was a different position from that previously assumed by Constable Justice. 
The position assumed by Constable Paul was the bass position, the bass position being that assumed by the bass player in a rock band. There are many similarities to the lead position, this being the position generally assumed by the lead guitarist, of course. Many similarities, but a few subtle nuances. Paul was demonstrating these subtle nuances to the constables who sat either side of him in the back of the paddy wagon. Author's note. You don't see too many paddy wagons about nowadays. The Ealing Constabulary are the last to actually employ them. But then they do have a tradition to uphold. The entrance to Ealing Police Station was used as the exterior of Doc Green in the TV series. This position really dates back to the bass player and status quo. He allegedly originally adopted due to bum burns caused by a dodgy vindaloo. But surely that's a rock myth, said Constable Brian Lurex, who had changed his name by deed pull, from Barry, like the one that Ozzy is the father of Britney Spears, or the one that the Rolling Stones eat their own young, added Constable Durex, who had reason enough to change his name, but hadn't. Or that the post office tower was modeled on a plaster cast of Jimi Hendrix's knob. I heard that said Constable Rigor Mortis, of the Sussex Rigor Mortises. And how come you're referred to as Constable Paul, while we're referred to by our surnames? Because I play the bass. Now, as I was saying, the paddy wagon bumped through the car park of the middleman. Johnny was back at the bar, and so missed that. Sorry, Constable Handbag the driver, called back over his shoulder through the little hatch hole jobby. I just wanted to see if this wagon could survive unexpected contact with a being from another world. Don't ask. Constable Durex waved a finger at Constable Paul. Sometimes it's better not to know. I'll tell you what I'd like to know, said Constable Paul, unassuming the position and picking up something large, black, and lethal-looking from the floor of the paddy wagon, and cradling it as one would cradle a bass guitar. What I'd like to know is whether I'm really going to get a chance to use this baby. It's a positronic ionization rifle, powered by the transperambulation of pseudo-cosmic antimatter. I'm expecting great things of it. Well, great things of a destructive nature. It's funny, said Constable Lurex, how swiftly things can get out of hand, without a guiding hand, without a degree of conscious control, how swiftly everything can fall to pieces. Eh? said Constable Paul. Klingon's on the starboard now sang Constable Handbag. It says in the manual here, said Constable Wingnut, that the positronic ionization rifle can disperse a charge of energy equal in heat to five times that of the sun on a very sunny day. And how, when using it on gypsies or anyone from the north wearing clogs, the operator is advised to wear special mirror-lensed spectacles. He took up the special mirror-lensed spectacles and slotted them onto his head. Cool, said Constable Paul. I didn't get a pair of those. Bump and bump went the paddy wagon. Almost there, Constable Handbag called back. Just had a bit of a Jerry Anderson moment there. I think the string working my right hand has come loose. Constable Durex waved the don't-ask finger once more at Constable Paul. But, went Constable Paul, he'll be all right when his medication kicks in. Just don't let him near any of the weapons. Whoa, went Constable Handbag, and he slammed on the brakes. Constable Paul and all the other constables in the back moved forward at speed and reassembled untidily in a big heap at the front. Look at that! Look at that! cried Constable Handbag. It's Ziggy Stardust, or one of the spiders from Mars. Constable Paul had quite a good view. His head was now stuck right through the little hatch in the partition that divided the cab from the rear of the wagon. It was quite difficult to breathe, though, 
what with all those other constables all piled up around and about and above and below him. But he had quite a good view. Constable Handbag and Constable Paul viewed the scene before them. It was a scene that was not devoid of interest. There were five police cars all swerved to a halt, and many policemen about these. And these policemen were discharging their weapons in the general direction of the big house. Happily, the bolts of hypersonic energy and the fusion of subatomic nub-nub particles were mostly missing the big house and striking instead the trees and the parked cars. A stray round of plasma passed between the trees and took out the park ranger's hut. Which was a shame because Ranger Connors' spare duffel coat with a pack of serial killer top trump cards were in there. Explosions erupted from the trimmed lawn. A statue of Sir Henry Crawford became nothing but memory. But... The target towards which this otherworldly firepower was directed was clearly no easy target. For although time and time again the little red dots of laser light flickered upon his person, he outmaneuvered every blast and volley, sometimes on four limbs, and sometimes on two. The being in black moved swiftly, and then from the big house issued Inspector Westlake, waving his hands and calling for a ceasefire. Whap! Whoomph! Kapow! And kablam! I said to cease fire! The constables in the paddy wagon looked on in awe as the figure in black leapt over a gun-toting constable, somersaulted over a police car, ran, jumped and dived, and ah! went constable handbag as the being in black passed through the windscreen of the paddy wagon and dropped down into the passenger seat beside him. Get out, said the being. Constable handbag got out. The being moved into the driver's seat and slammed shut the driver's door. Withdraw your head, he told Constable Paul. I can't wailed Constable Paul, and it was a wail. Withdraw it, or I will tear it from your neck. Constable Paul had one of those moments. Not one of those moments that Johnny had recently had, but another one of those other those moments. The ones where there's a car accident and the car's resting on the legs of a child and a little old lady lifts the car and the child gets rescued. One of those superhuman moments. Constable Paul fell back into the rear of the paddy wagon, taking knotted constables with him, and descending into another untidy heap, made worse by the sudden acceleration of the paddy wagon, and made doubly worse by the whams, bams, whomps, kabooms, and crash-bang wallops of police shellings that were now being directed toward the rear of the paddy wagon. "'Cease your bloody fire!' cried Inspector Westlake, and, chastened by such abominable language, the constables holstered their weapons." And bloody get after them, you f Phew, said Constable Justice. Can I come too? I can drive the car. Look at my bloody car! The inspector's bloody car was in bloody ruination. You can take mine, said Joan, straightening her attire and issuing from the doorway. Mine's a smart car, and it appears to have escaped the carnage. Thank you, madam, said Inspector Westlake, accepting the keys. And off up the drive went the paddy wagon, and out of the park gates, and into Pope's Lane and after it went the police cars, and after them a blue and gray smart car, which, although perhaps not as brisk as the turbocharged police cars, was very light on petrol and kind to the environment. Oh, woe, help and alas, bemoaned the writhing mass of constables in the rear of the paddy wagon. Get the f*** off me, shouted Paul. So I said, get the duck off me, said O'Fagan, because frankly it's not a good look at a Masonic ball. At least it wasn't a dinosaur, said Johnny, sticking out his empty glass in search of a refill. Dinosaur, said O'Fagan. It was a duck. Have you been drinking? Yes, 
said Johnny, and I'd like some lunch. Do you have any Peking duck? Stegosaurus, said O'Fagan. That's easy for you to say, said Johnny. Not as easy as you might think. But the Peking duck is off, because it had Stegosaurus in it. Do you mean Streptococcus? asked Johnny. Do you? asked O'Fagan. And then there came to the ears of Johnny, and the ears of O'Fagan, what can only be described as a growing cacophony of police car sirens and screaming engines. They're coming back, said Johnny. Tank tops, said O'Fagan. I do hope not. Tank tops, said Johnny. Oh no, hold on there. O'Fagan checked something beneath his counter. Blues musicians, he said. Dinosaurs, no. It's 70s fashion tomorrow. What is that? The table of toot, said O'Fagan. All publicans are issued with one monthly. Tells you what toot to engage your customers with. I don't know what I'd do without it. A whistle of missiles was clearly to be heard, that Doppler effect whistle, the one that varies in tone as the something that is causing the whistle, a missile in this particular case, gets nearer and nearer. Incoming, shouted O'Fagan, as he took a dive to the On his side of the bar counter, Johnny did likewise as two things struck the middleman. The first was a small ground-to-ground -ground harbinger missile, fired in anger by a constable named Agamemnon toward a swerving paddy wagon. The second was the swerving paddy wagon itself, its unwelcomed entry into the middle band being made somewhat easier due to the gaping hole that had just opened before it. There was that rendering of brickwork, that splintering of plaster, that tumbling of lintels, that ruination of pub chairs and tables and articles and artifacts and artless artworks, and with a roar of a rogue elephant and mash of a train wreck, the paddy wagon came to a halt amidst smoke and dust and chaos.